Chapter Eight, Part Three of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Eight, Part Three. But she was reserved for a very different fate. The outburst of republicanism had been, in fact, the last flicker of an expiring cause. The liberal tide, which had been flowing steadily ever since the reform bill, reached its height with Mr. Gladstone's first administration, and towards the end of that administration the inevitable ebb began. The reaction when it came was sudden and complete. The general election of 1874 changed the whole face of politics. Mr. Gladstone and the Liberals were routed, and the Tory party, for the first time for over forty years, attained an unquestioned supremacy in England. It was obvious that their surprising triumph was preeminently due to the skill and vigor of Disraeli. He returned to office, no longer the dubious commander of an insufficient host, but with drums beating and flags flying, a conquering hero. And as a conquering hero, Victoria welcomed her new Prime Minister. Then there followed six years of excitement, of enchantment, of felicity, of glory, of romance. The amazing being who now at last, at the age of seventy, after a lifetime of extraordinary struggles, had turned into reality the absurdest of his boyhood's dreams, knew well enough how to make his own, with absolute completeness, the heart of the sovereign lady whose servant and whose master he had so miraculously become. In women's hearts he had always read, as in an open book. His whole career had turned upon those curious entities, and the more curious they were, the more intimately at home with them he seemed to be. But Lady Beaconsfield, with her cracked idolatry, and Mrs. Bridges Williams, with her clogs, her corpulence, and her legacy, were gone and an even more remarkable phenomenon stood in their place. He surveyed what was before him with the eye of a past master, and he was not for a moment at a loss. He realized everything, the interacting complexities of circumstance and character, the pride of place mingled so inextricably with personal arrogance, the superabundant emotionalism, the ingenuousness of outlook, the solid, the laborious respectability shot through so incongruously by temperamental cravings for the colored and the strange, the singular intellectual limitations, and the mysteriously essential female elements impregnating every particle of the whole. A smile hovered over his impassive features, and he dubbed Victoria the fairy. The name delighted him for, with that epigrammatic ambiguity so dear to his heart, it precisely expressed his vision of the Queen. The Spenserian allusion was very pleasant, the elegant evocations of Gloriana. But there was more in it than that. There was the suggestion of a diminutive creature, endowed with magical and mythical properties, and a portentousness almost ridiculously out of keeping with the rest of her make-up. The fairy, he determined, should henceforward wave her wand for him alone. Detachment is always a rare quality, and rarest of all, perhaps, among politicians, 
but that veteran egotist possessed it in a supreme degree. Not only did he know what he had to do, not only did he do it, he was in the audience as well as on the stage, and he took in with the rich relish of a connoisseur every feature of the entertaining situation, every phase of the delicate drama, and every detail of his own consummate performance. The smile hovered and vanished, and, bowing low with oriental gravity and oriental submissiveness, he set himself to his task. He had understood from the first that in dealing with the fairy the appropriate method of approach was the very antithesis of the Gladstonian, and such a method was naturally his. It was not his habit to harangue and exhort and expatiate in official conscientiousness. He liked to scatter flowers along the path of business, to compress a weighty argument into a happy phrase, to insinuate what was in his mind with an air of friendship and confidential courtesy. He was nothing if not personal, and he had perceived that personality was the key that opened the fairy's heart. Accordingly, he never for a moment allowed his intercourse with her to lose the personal tone. He invested all the transactions of state with the charms of familiar conversation. She was always the royal lady, the adored and revered mistress, he the devoted and respectful friend. When once the personal relation was firmly established, every difficulty disappeared. But to maintain that relation uninterruptedly in a smooth and even course, a particular care was necessary. The bearings had to be most assiduously oiled. Nor was Disraeli in any doubt as to the nature of the lubricant. "'You have heard me called a flatterer,' he said to Matthew Arnold, "'and it is true. Every one likes flattery, and when you come to royalty you should lay it on with a trowel.' He practiced what he preached. His adulation was incessant, and he applied it in the very thickest slabs. "'There is no honor and no reward,' he declared, that with him can ever equal the possession of your majesty's kind thoughts. All his own thoughts and feelings and duties and affections are now concentrated in your majesty, and he desires nothing more for his remaining years than to serve your majesty, or if that service ceases, to live still on its memory as a period of his existence most interesting and fascinating. In life, he told her, one must have for one's thoughts a sacred depository, and Lord Beaconsfield ever presumes to seek that in his sovereign mistress. She was not only his own solitary support, she was the one prop of the state. If your majesty is ill, he wrote during a grave political crisis, he is sure he will himself break down. All really depends upon your majesty. He lives only for her, he asseverated, and works only for her, and without her all is lost. When her birthday came, he produced an elaborate confection of hyperbolic compliment. Today Lord Beaconsfield ought fitly perhaps to congratulate a powerful sovereign on her imperial sway, the vastness of her empire, and the success and strength of her fleets and armies. But he cannot. His mind is in another mood. 
he can only think of the strangeness of his destiny that it has come to pass that he should be the servant of one so great and whose infinite kindness the brightness of whose intelligence and the firmness of whose will have enabled him to undertake labours to which he otherwise would be quite unequal and supported him in all things by a condescending sympathy which in the hour of difficulty alike charms and inspires upon the sovereign of many lands and many hearts may an omnipotent providence shed every blessing that the wise can desire and the virtuous deserve in those expert hands the trowel seemed to assume the qualities of some lofty masonic symbol to be the ornate and glittering vehicle of verities unrealized by the profane such tributes were delightful but they remained in the nebulous region of words and disraeli had determined to give his blandishments a more significant solidity he deliberately encouraged those high views of her own position which had always been native to victoria's mind and had been reinforced by the principles of albert and the doctrines of stockmar he professed to a belief in a theory of the constitution which gave the sovereign a leading place in the councils of government but his pronouncements upon the subject were indistinct and when he emphatically declared that there ought to be a real throne it was probably with the mental addition that the throne would be a very unreal one indeed whose occupant was unamenable to his cajoleries but the vagueness of his language was in itself an added stimulant to victoria skilfully confusing the woman and the queen he threw with a grandiose gesture the government of england at her feet as if in doing so he were performing an act of personal homage in his first audience after returning to power he assured her that whatever she wished should be done when the intricate public worship regulation bill was being discussed by the cabinet he told the fairy that his only object was to further your majesty's wishes in this matter when he brought off his great coup over the suez canal he used expressions which implied that the only gainer by the transaction was victoria it is just settled he wrote in triumph you have it madam four million sterling and almost immediately there was only one firm that could do it rothschilds they behaved admirably advanced the money at a low rate and the entire interest of the cleave is now yours madam nor did he limit himself to highly spiced insinuations writing with all the authority of his office he advised the queen that she had the constitutional right to dismiss a ministry which was supported by a large majority in the house of commons he even urged her to do so if in her opinion your majesty's government have from wilfulness or even from weakness deceived your majesty to the horror of mr gladstone he not only kept the queen informed as to the general course of business in the cabinet but revealed to her the part taken in its discussions by individual members of it lord darby the son of the late prime minister and disraeli's foreign secretary viewed these developments with grave mistrust is there not he ventured to write to his chief just a risk of encouraging her in too large ideas of her personal power and too great indifference to what the public expects i only ask it is for you to judge as for victoria she accepted everything 
compliments, flatteries, Elizabethan prerogatives, without a single qualm. After the long gloom of her bereavement, after the chill of the Gladstonian discipline, she expanded to the rays of Disraeli's devotion like a flower in the sun. The change in her situation was indeed miraculous. No longer was she obliged to puzzle for hours over the complicated details of business, for now she had only to ask Mr. Disraeli for an explanation, and he would give it her in the most concise, in the most amusing way. No longer was she worried by alarming novelties. No longer was she put out at finding herself treated by a reverential gentleman in high collars as if she were some embodied precedent with a recondite knowledge of Greek. And her deliverer was surely the most fascinating of men. The strain of charlatanism which had unconsciously captivated her in Napoleon Third, exercised the same enchanting effect in the case of Disraeli like a dram-drinker whose ordinary life is passed in dull sobriety, her unsophisticated intelligence gulped down his rococo allurements with peculiar zest. She became intoxicated, entranced. Believing all that he told her of herself, she completely regained the self-confidence which had been slipping away from her throughout the dark period that followed Albert's death. She swelled with a new elation, while he, conjuring up before her wonderful oriental visions, dazzled her eyes with an imperial grandeur of which she had only dimly dreamed. Under the compelling influence, her very demeanor altered. Her short stout figure, with its folds of black velvet, its muslin streamers, its heavy pearls at the heavy neck, assumed an almost menacing air, in her countenance, from which the charm of youth had long since vanished, and which had not yet been softened by age, the traces of grief, of disappointment, and of displeasure were still visible, but they were overlaid by looks of arrogance and sharp lines of peremptory hauteur. Only when Mr. Disraeli appeared the expression changed in an instant, and the forbidding visage became charged with smiles. For him, she would do anything. Yielding to his encouragements, she began to emerge from her seclusion. She appeared in London in semi-state at hospitals and concerts. She opened Parliament. She reviewed troops and distributed medals at Aldershot. But such public signs of favor were trivial in comparison with her private attentions. During his hours of audience, she could hardly restrain her excitement and delight. I can only describe my reception, he wrote to a friend on one occasion, by telling you that I really thought she was going to embrace me. She was wreathed with smiles, and as she tattled, glided about the room like a bird. In his absence she talked of him perpetually, and there was a note of unusual vehemence in her solicitude for his health. John Manners, Disraeli told Lady Bradford, who has just come from Osborne, says that the fairy only talked of one subject, and that was her primo. According to him, it was her gracious opinion that the government should make my health a cabinet question. Dear John seemed quite surprised at what she said, but you are used to these ebullitions. She often sent him presents. An illustrated album arrived for him regularly from Windsor on Christmas Day but her most valued gifts were the bunches of spring flowers which, gathered by herself and her ladies in the woods at Osborne, marked in an especial manner the warmth and tenderness of her sentiments. 
Among these it was, he declared, the primroses that he loved the best. They were, he said, the ambassadors of spring, the gems and jewels of nature. He liked them, he assured her, so much better for their being wild. They seem an offering from the fauns and dryads of Osborne. They show, he told her, that your majesty's scepter has touched the enchanted isle. He sat at dinner with heaped-up bowls of them on every side, and told his guests that they were all sent to me this morning by the Queen from Osborne, as she knows it is my favorite flower. As time went on, and as it became clearer and clearer that the fairy's thraldom was complete, his protestations grew steadily more highly colored and more unabashed. At last he ventured to import into his blandishments a strain of adoration that was almost avowedly romantic. In phrases of baroque convolution he conveyed the message of his heart. The pressure of business, he wrote, had so absorbed and exhausted him that toward the hour of post he has not had clearness of mind and vigor of pen adequate to convey his thoughts and facts to the most loved and illustrious being who deigns to consider them. She sent him some primroses, and he replied that he could truly say they are more precious than rubies, coming as they do and at such a moment from a sovereign whom he adores. She sent him snowdrops, and his sentiment overflowed into poetry. Yesterday eve, he wrote, there appeared in Whitehall Gardens a delicate-looking case with a royal superscription, which, when he opened, he thought at first that your majesty had graciously bestowed upon him the stars of your majesty's principal orders. And indeed, he was so impressed with this graceful illusion that, having a banquet where there were many stars and ribbons, he could not resist the temptation, by placing some snowdrops on his heart, of showing that he, too, was decorated by a gracious sovereign. Then, in the middle of the night, it occurred to him that it might all be an enchantment, and that perhaps it was a fairy gift and came from another monarch, Queen Titania, gathering flowers with her court in a soft and sea-girt isle, and sending magic blossoms which, they say, turn the heads of those who receive them. A fairy gift! Did he smile as he wrote the words? Perhaps. And yet it would be rash to conclude that his perfervid declarations were altogether without sincerity. Actor and spectator both, the two characters were so intimately blended together in that odd composition that they formed an inseparable unity, and it was impossible to say that one of them was less genuine than the other. With one element he could coldly appraise the fairy's intellectual capacity, note with some surprise that she could be on occasion most interesting and amusing, and then continue his use of the trowel with an ironical solemnity, while with the other he could be overwhelmed by the immemorial panoply of royalty, and, thrilling with the sense of his own strange elevation, dream himself into a gorgeous fantasy of crowns and powers and chivalric love. When he told Victoria that, during a somewhat romantic and imaginative life, Nothing has ever occurred to him so interesting as this confidential correspondence with one so exalted and so inspiring. Was he not in earnest, after all? 
when he wrote to a lady about the court, I love the Queen, perhaps the only person in this world left to me that I do love. Was he not creating for himself an enchanted palace out of the Arabian Nights, full of melancholy and spangles in which he actually believed? Victoria's state of mind was far more simple. Untroubled by imaginative yearnings, she never lost herself in that nebulous region of the spirit where feeling and fancy grow confused. Her emotions, with all their intensity and all their exaggeration, retained the plain prosaic texture of everyday life, and it was fitting that her expression of them should be equally commonplace. She was, she told her Prime Minister, at the end of an official letter, Yours, Affli, V, R, and I, she wrote, A, F, F, apostrophe, L, Y. In such a phrase, the deep reality of her feeling is instantly manifest. The fairy's feet were on the solid earth. It was the ruse cynic who was in the air. He had taught her, however, a lesson which she had learnt with alarming rapidity. A second Gloriana, did he call her? Very well, then. She would show that she deserved the compliment. Disquieting symptoms followed fast. In May 1874, the Tsar, whose daughter had just been married to Victoria's second son, the Duke of Edinburgh, was in London, and by an unfortunate error it had been arranged that his departure should not take place until two days after the date on which his royal hostess had previously decided to go to Balmoral. Her Majesty refused to modify her plans. It was pointed out to her that the Tsar would certainly be offended, that the most serious consequences might follow. Lord Derby protested. Lord Salisbury, the Secretary of State for India, was much perturbed. But the fairy was unconcerned. She had settled to go to Balmoral on the 18th, and on the 18th she would go. At last Disraeli, exercising all his influence, induced her to agree to stay in London for two days more. My head is still on my shoulders, he told Lady Bradford. The great lady has absolutely postponed her departure. Everybody had failed, even the Prince of Wales. And I have no doubt I am not in favor. I can't help it. Salisbury says I have saved an Afghan war, and Darby compliments me on my unrivaled triumph. But before very long, on another issue, the triumph was the fairies. Disraeli, who had suddenly veered towards a new imperialism, had thrown out the suggestion that the Queen of England ought to become the Empress of India. Victoria seized upon the idea with avidity, and, in season and out of season, pressed upon her Prime Minister the desirability of putting his proposal into practice. He demurred, but she was not to be balked and in 1876, in spite of his own unwillingness and that of his entire cabinet, he found himself obliged to add to the troubles of a stormy session by introducing a bill for the alteration of the royal title. His compliance, however, finally conquered the fairy's heart. The measure was angrily attacked in both houses, and Victoria was deeply touched by the untiring energy with which Disraeli defended it. She was, she said, much grieved by the worry and annoyance to which he was subjected. She feared she was the cause of it, and she would never forget what she owed to her kind, good, and considerate friend. At the same time, her wrath fell on the opposition. 
Their conduct, she declared, was extraordinary, incomprehensible, and mistaken, and, in an emphatic sentence which seemed to contradict both itself and all her former proceedings, she protested that she would be glad if it were more generally known that it was her wish, as people will have it, that it has been forced upon her. When the affair was successfully over, the imperial triumph was celebrated in a suitable manner. On the day of the Delhi proclamation, the new Earl of Beaconsfield went to Windsor to dine with the new Empress of India. That night, the fairy, usually so homely in her attire, appeared in a glittering panoply of enormous uncut jewels which had been presented to her by the reigning princes of her Raj. At the end of the meal, the Prime Minister, breaking through the rules of etiquette, arose, and in a flowery oration proposed the health of Queen Empress. His audacity was well received, and his speech was rewarded by a smiling curtsy. These were significant episodes, but a still more serious manifestation of Victoria's temper occurred in the following year, during the crowning crisis of Beaconsfield's life. His growing imperialism, his desire to magnify the power and prestige of England, his insistence upon a spirited foreign policy, had brought him into collision with Russia. The terrible Eastern question loomed up, and when war broke out between Russia and Turkey, the gravity of the situation became extreme. The Prime Minister's policy was fraught with difficulty and danger. Realizing perfectly the appalling implications of an Anglo-Russian war, he was yet prepared to face even that eventuality if he could obtain his ends by no other method. But he believed that Russia in reality was still less desirous of a rupture, and that if he played his game with sufficient boldness and adroitness, she would yield when it came to the point all that he required without a blow. It was clear that the course he had marked out for himself was full of hazard, and demanded an extraordinary nerve. A single false step, and either himself or England might be plunged in disaster. But nerve he had never lacked. He began his diplomatic egg-dance with high assurance, and then he discovered that, besides the Russian government, besides the liberals and Mr. Gladstone, there were two additional sources of perilous embarrassment with which he would have to reckon. In the first place, there was a strong party in the cabinet, headed by Lord Derby, the foreign secretary, which was unwilling to take the risk of war. But his culminating anxiety was the ferry. From the first, her attitude was uncompromising. The old hatred of Russia, which had been engendered by the Crimean War, surged up again within her. She remembered Albert's prolonged animosity. She felt the prickings of her own greatness, and she flung herself into the turmoil with passionate heat. Her indignation with the opposition, with anyone who ventured to sympathize with the Russians in their quarrel with the Turks, was unbounded. When anti-Turkish meetings were held in London, presided over by the Duke of Westminster and Lord Shaftesbury, and attended by Mr. Gladstone and other prominent radicals, she considered that the Attorney General ought to be set at these men. It can't, she exclaimed, be constitutional. Never in her life, not even in the crisis over the ladies of the bedchamber, did she show herself a more furious partisan. But her displeasure was not reserved for the radicals. 
the backsliding conservatives equally felt its force. She was even discontented with Lord Beaconsfield himself. Failing entirely to appreciate the delicate complexity of his policy, she constantly assailed him with demands for vigorous action, interpreted each finesse as a sign of weakness, and was ready at every juncture to let slip the dogs of war. As the situation developed, her anxiety grew feverish. The Queen, she wrote, is feeling terribly anxious, lest delay should cause us to be too late and lose our prestige for ever. It worries her night and day. The fairy, Beaconsfield told Lady Bradford, writes every day and telegraphs every hour. This is almost literally the case. She raged loudly against the Russians. And the language, she cried, the insulting language used by the Russians against us, it makes the Queen's blood boil. Oh, she wrote a little later, if the Queen were a man, she would like to go and give those Russians whose word one cannot believe, such a beating. We shall never be friends again till we have it out. This the Queen feels sure of. The unfortunate Prime Minister, urged on to violence by Victoria on one side, had to deal on the other with a foreign secretary who was fundamentally opposed to any policy of active interference at all. Between the Queen and Lord Derby he held a harassed course, he gained, indeed, some slight satisfaction in playing on the one against the other, in stimulating Lord Derby with the Queen's missives, and in appeasing the Queen by repudiating Lord Derby's opinions. On one occasion he actually went so far as to compose, at Victoria's request, a letter bitterly attacking his colleague, which Her Majesty forthwith signed and sent without alteration to the Foreign Secretary. But such devices only gave a temporary relief, and it soon became evident that Victoria's martial ardor was not to be sidetracked by hostilities against Lord Derby. Hostilities against Russia were what she wanted, what she would, what she must have. For now, casting aside the last relics of moderation, she began to attack her friend with a series of extraordinary threats. Not once, not twice, but many times she held over his head the formidable menace of her imminent abdication. If England, she wrote to Beaconsfield, is to kiss Russia's feet, she will not be a party to the humiliation of England, and would lay down her crown. And she added that the Prime Minister might, if he thought fit, repeat her words to the Cabinet. This delay, she ejaculated, this uncertainty by which abroad we are losing our prestige and our position, while Russia is advancing and will be before Constantinople in no time, then the government will be fearfully blamed, and the Queen so humiliated that she thinks she would abdicate at once. Be bold. She feels, she reiterated, she cannot, as she said before, remain the sovereign of a country that is letting itself down to kiss the feet of the great barbarians, the retarders of all liberty and civilization that exists. When the Russians advanced to the outskirts of Constantinople, she fired off three letters in a day, demanding war, and when she learnt that the cabinet had only decided to send the fleet to Gallipoli, she declared that her first impulse was to lay down the thorny crown which she feels little satisfaction in retaining if the position of this country is to remain as it is now. 
it is easy to imagine the agitating effect of such a correspondence upon Beaconsfield. This was no longer the fairy. It was a genie whom he had rashly called out of her bottle, and who was now intent upon showing her supernal power. More than once, perplexed, dispirited, shattered by illness, he had thoughts of withdrawing altogether from the game. One thing alone, he told Lady Bradford, with a wry smile, prevented him. If I could only, he wrote, face the scene which would occur at headquarters if I resigned, I would do so at once. He held on, however, to emerge victorious at last. The Queen was pacified. Lord Derby was replaced by Lord Salisbury. And at the Congress of Berlin, der alte Jude carried all before him. He returned to England in triumph, and assured the delighted Victoria that she would very soon be, if she was not already, the Datress of Europe. But soon there was an unexpected reverse. At the general election of 1880, the country, mistrustful of the forward policy of the Conservatives and carried away by Mr. Gladstone's oratory, returned the Liberals to power. Victoria was horrified, but within a year she was to be yet more nearly hit. The grand romance had come to its conclusion. Lord Beaconsfield, worn out with age and maladies, but moving still, an assiduous mummy from dinner-party to dinner-party, suddenly moved no longer. When she knew that the end was inevitable, she seemed by a pathetic instinct to divest herself of her royalty, and to shrink with hushed gentleness beside him, a woman and nothing more. "'I send some Osborne primroses,' she wrote to him with touching simplicity, "'and I meant to pay you a little visit this week, but I thought it better you should be quite quiet and not speak, and I beg you will be very good and obey the doctors.' She would see him, she said, "'when we come back from Osborne, which won't be long.' "'Everyone is so distressed at your not being well,' she added, and she was, "'Ever yours very aptly, V.R.I.' When the royal letter was given him, the strange old comedian stretched on his bed of death, poised it in his hand, appeared to consider deeply, and then whispered to those about him, "'This ought to be read to me by a privy counsellor.'" End of chapter 8, part 3